we were selling our milk to Amanpulo uh, back in 2008. And I was thinking, if Amanpulo is buying our milk, I can do something with our milk that tastes really good. So, yeah, so that's what made me think of other products that we could make. We were trying flavored milk, drinkable yogurt, um, some cheeses that we could sell, even pastillas. But when we made ice cream, I was like, oh my gosh, this is just amazing. I mean, we have, we're just gonna sell ice cream, that's it. You know, when you realize that you're gonna die and you accept it, you reach a level of peace that you never knew existed. Like everything's fine and you know, you don't get so upset anymore and you're more understanding of things. You need bigger tips, you know. And, and I knew that, you know, if I had to go in three years, maybe that was my destiny, that was my, my journey. A journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. For me, many people, they're so afraid of the unknown. Unless you take that first step and you start your journey, you'll never know what the unknown is. And for me, if I was not open to changing careers at the age of 43, I'd still be sitting in my desk, behind my desk, and empty life. <laughs> Hi guys, this is Molik and welcome to the Future Proof Leader Podcast. Today I sit down with Paco Maxaisai, who is the founder and CEO of my favorite ice cream brand in the country, Carmen's Best. Paco is also the grandson of the seventh president of the Philippines, Ramon Maxaisai, and son of a senator, June Maxaisai. During this candid conversation, Paco opens up about why he chose not to pursue a career in politics, how he came up with an idea for Carmen's Best Ice Cream, and how he made it a household name in the country. He also shares his inspiring story about how he beat cancer and how it changed his perspective on life. Enjoy. Paco, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, I really appreciate it. Well, I'm super excited to have you here. You know, most people know you as the founder and CEO of Carmen's Best Ice Cream. But what uh, most people may not know is that you started your professional career as a gas boy working at a gas station. Can you tell us about that? Yes, it was actually the end of the school year in Manila. And it was like a summer job. But the end of summer, I wasn't going to be attending school anymore in the Philippines. I was planning to move to the U.S. because my, my mom had decided to move to, me and my sister to the U.S. since she and my father had separated a few years earlier. So I started working um, in the Caltech station next to the Unimart. If I'm not mistaken, it's still there. So I was uh, pumping gas and uh, cleaning cars um, 1979, 1980, yeah. So a long time ago. And how much were they paying you? I know it was a family business, but I'm sure they, they paid you well. No, they paid me 100 pesos uh, for the week. I mean, at that, that time, uh, minimum wage was more than that. And I was just working part-time. So you could tell I was working for my tips. <laughs> so I was doing my best <laughs> to work hard, give good service, you know. So I, I learned early, I learned early. Oh, no, that's awesome. And what would you do with the money? Uh, I mean, you come from a well-to-do family. So uh, was that the pocket money for your toys or ice cream or what? Believe it or not, that was when um, um, Coney Island was still open. Uh, it's a, a local ice cream company 
that offered many different uh, flavors similar to Baskin Robbins or 31 flavors. And I would go go to the um, Coney Island ice cream shop in Green Hills also and buy my bubblegum ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So right after that, uh, Paco, you actually moved to the U.S. And that must be a big change for you as a teenager with lots of friends here in La Salle. I think you attended La Salle. And then having yes. to go to a completely different country and find new friends, get used to a new culture. How was that experience for you? Actually, it was a difficult time in my life. Uh, when we left here, as I mentioned earlier, my parents had separated. And, you know, in the mid to early mid to late 70s, there weren't too many child psychologists. <laughs> there, I know there were <laughs> psychiatrists for older people, but I don't think child psychology was a big at that time. So, you know, yeah, kids it was were called sort of, mom, I think. Yeah, <laughs> mom. So it was uh, <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, figure things out on your own. And um, it was a little bit, uh, it was a trying time for me and my sister. Uh, but, you know, as they say, when you, when you, uh, go through difficulty and hardship, uh, you become a stronger person. So that we became. We became very strong because of that. Uh, moving to the U.S. was uh, challenging. Now, how long was that difficult time? I'm sure you eventually got used to the new world, uh, yes. new culture, new country. But uh, how long did you struggle? Was it a year or two or longer? It was a little bit longer. I, I think... Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're young, you're in your teenage years, you know, you're, even your hormones are changing and um, yeah. you're looking for your identity. And, you know, we were in Texas, in Houston, Texas, and um, it's, it was quite um, challenging then because it's very, uh, it's very white, if you don't mind me saying, it's very Caucasian. Yes. So there weren't that many, um, you know, minorities or, or the few minorities that were there. Um, you know, we had a difficult time and we attended private school. So you can imagine there was a lot less minorities in private school. And um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it was a it was a it was a challenging time, but, you know, still learned a lot of things. Yeah. How did you manage being away from your dad? I'm sure that those are the years when you, you know, want to be connected with your dad, stay close to him. How did you stay connected with him? Well, my father would visit us um, at least once a year and we would come back to the Philippines for summer and Christmas. So we would definitely, um, you know, make a point to come back. And, you know, that time uh, it was all mail. We, my father would write us a letter every week. He would write us letters. So, you know, we would be waiting by the post post box for, for the a mailman to drop off the mail. Wow. So, you know, that was the, also the time when uh, a one-minute call would cost $4. You know, long distance was quite expensive at that time. So it was hard to just call people up, you know. Yeah, and there was no FaceTime, no FaceTime or Viber. No Viber. Yeah, <laughs> Messenger. Yeah. So it's so easy now to stay in touch. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I can imagine it must have been uh, extremely difficult. But I would yeah. think, having lived there for more than a decade in the U.S., Looking back, you must have walked away with so many life skills that you yeah. still use today. Are you a different person, Paco, because of your experience in the U.S.? How would you have been different if you didn't go to the U.S.? 
That's a great question because for many years, I sort of resented that I was brought to the U.S. and I grew up there only to realize that that what makes me different from everybody. Yeah. And I think um, had I grown up here, I don't think I'd be as, um, how you say, intense. I, I wouldn't be as intense or more likely as hardworking as I am now. Uh, I think mm-hmm. in the U.S., um, you know, being a minority, you sort of want to prove yourself. You're always constantly trying to prove yourself and show that you're able to do it or maybe able to do it even better. So yeah. you tend to work uh, longer hours or you work harder um, than, you know, people who are of the same, you know, uh, social level or your classmates. So it, it really made me a, a tougher person and uh, appreciate the, you know, the little things in life. So you stayed there for a while. You did your bachelor's degree, I believe, from the University of St. Thomas. Yes, and, that's right. And uh, you have a degree in marketing, right? Yes. Um, what was your first job out of university? Okay, so I graduated in 1991, and there was a recession at that time. And um, the only job I could find then was work in a warehouse. And I was working in a warehouse for a company called Supercom Computer Monitors. It was um, a Taiwanese uh, monitor company that was uh, sending computer monitors to Houston. And I would, you know, I would be the one unloading the 18-wheeler trucks. <laughs> I remember wow. um, I just have a dolly, yeah, and I'd be unloading the 18-wheeler trucks either, whether it's summer, so it'd be so hot or when it's winter, when it's so cold. So, you know, it made me appreciate hard labor or, you know, working with your hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, you don't realize how much it helps you because when you get older and there might be some type of work that's needed, especially, let's say, like Carmen's Best, and there's times that I need to do work myself, especially the first few years, it's no big deal for you because, you know, it's not new for you. It's something you've done it before. So... Yeah, so when you start, you know, putting up a company and then you don't have a lot of uh, money to spend in terms of hiring people, you tend to do a lot of things on your own, you know, from delivering to selling, customer service, collecting, you know, um, payments and whatnot. So you're like a jack of all trades. So you got to do everything. That's true. And how long did you unload those uh, 18-wheelers? It was about a year. I was doing that. I was was in charge of the... um, the warehouse and so I was cleaning the toilets in the warehouse and I was unloading the boxes and yeah so that was about a year and then I I got a job with MCI which is uh, called Microwave Communications Incorporated yep. a long distance company yeah mm-hmm. and uh, that was exciting because I was the only Asian out of 50 salespeople. <laughs> so, wow yeah I was the only Asian yeah so it was um, challenging but I I specifically started selling long distance to Asian-owned companies. Nice. So I realized me being Asian, I had a better chance of closing deals with other Asian companies. So that's all I did. I went to the Vietnamese area of town, to the Chinatown, to the Filipino town, and I was closing a lot of accounts to the point that I was second, uh, the second highest in the in to- total grid points of MCI. Wow. And um People would start coming to my cubicle, asking me for advice and stuff. <laughs> so That's like, amazing. When I first got here, you weren't even minding me before. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're asking me for advice. 
No, that's amazing. So, you know, yeah. So just uh, understand your strength. Yeah. And it seems like uh, you found your uh, calling to an extent, right? I mean, you realize very soon, and I'm sure your family also was happy about that, that uh, you were not meant to unload 18-wheelers and uh, <laughs> clean toilets. Uh, you were meant to yeah. do bigger and better things in life. So uh, yes, how long yes. did you do that sales uh, work at uh, MCI for? I did it for about a year and a half. Yeah. And then uh, was that the time you moved back to the Philippines? And what prompted you yes. actually to come back to the Philippines? Well, I had come back for a few months in 1992 when my wow. father ran for vice president with then uh, Miriam Defensor Santiago. She ran for president and then my father ran for vice president with her. And I came back to help them out um, in the campaign. And um, that that was such an eye opener because, you know, I had, you know, lived in the U.S. for so long and coming back here, helping my father campaign was such an eye opener. And the year after he told me to come back and help him out with the business because he had planned to, you know, uh, go back into politics. So that was a surprise for me because I had a good job at MCI. You know? Yeah, it seems was, like you yeah. were enjoying it. Yeah, I was getting a you know good pay. That's right. So he convinced you that hey, maybe it's time for you to come back and help, help me out in the family and, business. Yeah. Oh, okay, all right, okay. Yeah. And was that a difficult uh, transition for you? Because you know, as much as you resented the fact that you were sent to the U.S. I'm sure yeah. at one point you got used to the life in the U.S. Uh, you yes. built a good career there. Was it a difficult transition for you, Paco, to come back to the Philippines? Because here you are, you have lived in the U.S. for many years now. You have built a good career. And now suddenly you're packing your bags and coming back to the Philippines. How did you manage that reverse culture shock, so to speak? Actually, it was harder than I thought. Um, yeah. You know, when I came here, I had been working in the U.S. for a few years. And, you know, even in college, I worked for UPS. I worked for UPS yeah. for four years. So, you know, you, you get used to the pace of work there and, you know, how people treat you. And, you know, I was not exactly a supervisor or a manager. So people were always, you know, I was always in the lower part of the company. And you come here and then all of a sudden you're like, you know, you're one of the upper people in management and, so you start managing the business here as if you were in the U.S. <laughs> and you can right. imagine it does not work. It does it not work. It doesn't work. Yeah. Yes. And I also noticed people don't appreciate intense people here. You know, everybody's so relaxed and laid back. And so I had to sort of show that I am not intense, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that I'm joking around <laughs> and laughing and all that. And, but, you know, deep down, it's still there. I mean, you can turn it on and off. As you get older, you know when to turn it on, when you know when to turn it off. And um, it, it was hard. I mean, I remember I was still thinking of moving back to the U.S. after two years of being here. Um, it crossed my mind to move back to the U.S. And, and go back to my work because they were asking me to come back. Uh, you, um, MCI was asking me to come back. and um, But, you know, I said, it's not all about the money. You know, it's not about getting paid more in the U.S. than getting paid here. But it's more about being with your family and, you know, doing what you enjoy. And, you know, I wanted the, the kids to grow up here. Uh, so my eldest was born in 1993. 
And uh, when he was born, I was thinking of moving back to the U.S. But then I realized I just I would rather have them grow up here. You know? Yeah. So even raising the kids, um, since yes. they grew up here and I didn't grow up here, there's a little bit of a disconnect <laughs> because yes. I, I'm used to the American. <laughs> and I realized, oh, my kids didn't grow up in the U.S., but I did. So yes. maybe my expectation should be different. You know, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because you sort of mix um, you know, the local culture with a different culture, which, you know, hopefully you get bits and pieces of it or you cherry pick and you use it on your kids. When you came back to the Philippines, did your dad automatically put you as the head of the company he was running? I, I, I mean, he's no. considered uh, your father, uh, yeah. you know, Senator June Maxaisai is considered as the father of the Philippine cable industry, right? That's right. And uh, that's he did the very good. In, uh, he did very good research. <laughs> I have I have researched you so much. I know everything about you. I know where you live. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yes, he has. Um, he's known as the father of the cable industry, and that's the business that actually has made us live and survive the last, you know, fifty plus years. He started yeah. the business in 1972. But when I came in, he made me build systems first. So I wasn't like the head person. So I learned how to build. We built a system in Tarlac City. So I would go to Tarlac every week, spend time there, and see how the cable system was built. So it was all analog at that time. There was no digital. So it was all coax cables. And um, you know there were no satellites yet at the time. So it was more um, antenna relay from, from Manila, antenna relay. No, no, no satellite signals yet. And how did uh, the people you were working with here take you? Uh, because here you are, you are the, um, you know, what they call COO, a child of the owner. That's right. And you come in and uh, you are put in a position of power. Did they embrace you? Did they accept you as the boss or you had to, you know, earn your stripes? Yeah, you had to win them over. I mean, yeah. they see that you're out there, you're trying your best, you're learning. And then you break bread with them, you eat where they eat. And I don't really drink, so I wouldn't drink with them, but I would eat with them. <laughs> and, um, you know, you talk to them about their families, so they get to understand you. And more than anything, I think if they see that you sincerely care for them, that you want to help them out when yeah. times are tough. And that's when they start, you know, supporting you and backing you up. And eventually you ended up becoming the president and CEO of the company, right? Yes, when my father became senator, he left. He didn't have a choice. <laughs> so yeah. he had to divest his shares. And That's um, right. yeah, so I started running the company and um, it was good. I mean, you know, I was running it the way, you know, I felt how it should be run. And of course, the transparency was important because my sister is also part of the organization yeah. of the company, but not of management. So yeah. if my father wanted to have my have us audited, that would be no problem at all. And, um, you know, a lot of the people that were with us were primarily his people. So they would report to him or they would tell him things. So, you know, I was totally fine with that. But I had my way of running things, right? So when, when he got out of the Senate, then he started uh, wanting to run the company again the way he wanted to run it. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, so you start bumping heads with your uh, older family members in the business. And so how, how did that work out? So he came back uh, and uh, came back, yeah. he, he probably was uh, what chairman and you were the CEO? Yes. So 
and you know, I'm not the I'm not the type that will uh, fight or argue with my father. Of course, you know, because yeah. it's not worth it. I mean, you know, so for me, my feeling is it's his company, it's his baby, and he should run it the way he wants to, and I'll just yeah. you know do it the way he wants. And um, I think that was such a big motivation for me to show him that my way works. You know, so when I started the ice cream business, I wanted to show him, hey, this is how I do things and my way works. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. you know, sometimes you need that extra motivation. You know, it's yes. not just money. You know, it's just, hey, I want to show him that my way works. And that's yeah. what I did with the ice cream business. So my way works. You did it your way, according right. to Frank Sinatra, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, I'm sure this is a question that um, you've been asked many times, Paco. But, you know, your uh, grandfather has been uh, the president of the Philippines. Your father has been the senator. Do you ever think about, dream about being part of the Philippine politics? Have you thought about it? Well, I have thought about it. I mean... I'm not going to lie about it. I've thought about it because, like you said, my grandfather, president, my father, senator, two terms, congressman in the 60s, and then I make ice cream. <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. So, <laughs> so, you know, I just see it that um, my father grew up in a very different environment. I mean, he lived in Malacanang when he was younger. He yeah. was around politics, you know, the, the whole time. I grew up in Houston. You know, I grew mm -hmm. up having a hard time looking for a job because of my name. It sounded so weird for them, you know. So mm -hmm. because of my background was so different and I was not really exposed to politics, um, I would just think about it. But then the time that I was really thinking about it, my father said, spend five days in the Senate and spend five days in Congress in Batasan and tell me if you still want to do it. <laughs> Because <laughs> he knew me, he knew me well enough that that was not my yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. Like deliberating and interpolating and all that. I'm like, no, that's not that's not for me. I mean, that's that's really, for me, it's like lawyers' work, you know. So did you actually end up uh, going to Senate yeah. and Congress and sit there for five days in each? Yeah, I sat down in the Senate session hall, which is in the GSIS building. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was just watching. You know, I know most of the people because they. They were yeah. colleagues of my father. Yeah. I never worked in the Senate. I never had an ID there. I think I've only been there like 10 times the whole time he was senator for 12 years. So I, I hardly went there. But, um, and I was not chief of staff. <laughs> I, was never, <laughs> I was never chief of staff of his office. But I knew the other senators and I knew the children of the other senators. So, I mean, they see me as one of them because, you know, my of grandfather course. was president and so on. Um, but I don't, it's not in me, you know, it's not in me. Yeah. I'm more comfortable with, you know, business people and, um, yeah, just, I'm more comfortable in business uh, situations than political. Like if you make me talk a uh, political speech, I start sweating and get nervous. <laughs> yeah. I get really uneasy, you know, so it's yeah. not for me. Yeah. But you can talk for hours about Carmen's Best, right? That's right. That's right. I do a lot of talks for Carmen's Best. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. speaking of that, by the way, it'd be nice to hear how did the concept of making ice cream in the Philippines come about? So the last few years of my father's Senate term, he was chairman of the Agriculture Committee. 
and you know, being chairman of the agriculture committee, he gets to go around and interact with different uh, sectors of agriculture. And um, he realized that we bring in 99.6% of our dairy needs. So a lot of the dairy needs that are, are, are used in the country are brought in uh, second only to rice. Rice is our largest import, second mm -hmm. is dairy. Wow. So he said, well, I'll put up a dairy farm without even, you know, studying it. <laughs> I'll just put up a dairy farm. I go, okay. And I'm like, why are you going to put up a dairy farm? We're in cable TV. You know, that's so yeah. far from what we're doing, right? That's right. And um, the first year, I didn't even attend any of their meetings or, you know, um, their plans of as to how to go about with the dairy. I just said, I'll just work on the cable and then you can work on the dairy. <laughs> right? Because it was, you know, I'm a city boy and, you know, he's... He wanted to do the dairy, so. But one year after, he asked me, he came into my office and asked me, can you help me sell the milk? Because we have to throw away so much milk because it's going bad, you know. Mm -hmm. we, we, we pasteurize and homogenize it as fresh milk, so the shelf life is only seven to 10 days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was thinking, well, that's such a waste, you know. I mean, to, to throw away milk, and we spend so much on genetics, we spend so much on cow comfort, on nutrition only to throw away the milk, right? Yeah. So I was thinking maybe I should come up with um, another product that's mm -hmm. dairy-based. So in 2009, we incorporated a company called Carmen's Best Dairy Products. If you notice, there's no ice cream in that name. Yes. Because we did not know we were going to make ice cream, right? But the farm told me to do something dairy-based, right? One question I have is uh, when he set up the farm, did he bring the cattle for the milk? I don't know whether that's the right term or not, but uh, yeah. from different parts of the Philippines or he imported them? Well, there was a program with the National Dairy Authority, the NDA, which mm -hmm. is under the Department of Agriculture, where you could bring in cows from New Zealand. So oh, you, wow. we brought in 100 pregnant heifers at that time. Oh. And um, after five years, we're supposed to pay back the, the NDA with another pregnant heifer. So it's like, you know, um, pregnant heifer in, pregnant heifer out. Okay. Um, yeah, so, well, there's no dairy cow breed in the Philippines. Yeah. So the dairy cows that we got were a cross breed of Holstein and Sahiwal, which is an Indian Sahiwal cow, dairy cow. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it was bred for tropical countries. And that's the type of cows that we have. All right. Wow. So these are, you're talking about milk from the best source possible, right? I mean, New Zealand right. milk products are right. uh, well yeah. known. Yeah. So it's because of that. Actually, the first account I got for selling milk, because initially I was helping sell the milk. Yeah. Um, so when my dad came to my office and asked me to help him sell the milk, I had a trip planned for to Amanpulo that, that weekend. And, um, you know, I did some research. I found out that the general manager was, she was from New Zealand and um, her husband was, was British. And um, I actually brought some milk with me. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I brought some milk with me. And I said, you know, she understood milk and my stepfather was from New Zealand. So I, I've yeah. been there several times and, you know, it was easy to talk to her and you know, we got to talk and they started buying our milk. Nice. And uh, so we were selling our milk to Amanpulo uh, back in 2008. And I was thinking, if Amanpulo is buying our milk, 
I can do something with our milk that tastes really good. You know? Yes. So, yeah. So that's what made me think of other products that we could make. That's amazing. That's yeah. why the name Carmen's Best Dairy Products came up. And so you didn't start right off the bat with ice cream. You made no. other products first? Yes, we were trying um, flavored milk, um, drinkable yogurt, um, some cheeses that we could sell, even pastillas. You know, it sounds so boring. Oh, yeah, pastillas. I love pastillas. Yeah. Yeah. But when we made ice cream, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is just amazing. You know, I mean, we have we're just going to sell ice cream. That's it. <laughs> so, so we did that. We, we just did ice cream from then on. We started selling in 2011. And you actually didn't know anything about making ice cream. So how yes. did you go about learning how to make ice cream? YouTube was in its very early stage at that time. Were you watching right. YouTube videos right. or did you find books about it? Actually, that's when I was, uh, I was enrolled in AIM at that time. Okay. And um, I remember very well the class where Andy Ferreria, my, my professor, talked about how well you should know yourself, you know, understand your strengths and your weakness and all these things. Yeah. And um, I remember from class, I went straight to the town center and I bought myself a KitchenAid mixer. Nice. I bought a KitchenAid mixer because I wanted to bake for my kids, mm. you know, because I had just gone through a separation with my wife at that time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do more things for my kids, you know, be more connected with them and and so on. So I was already baking. I was doing uh, cookies, brownies, uh, fudge and whatnot. So baking is very exact. Unlike cooking, cooking is more a pinch of this and yes. a pinch of that. That's not me. I'm more exact. I mean, you know, measure everything, everything exact. So when I started watching videos of how to make ice cream, it, it was that. It was baking. It was... Everything had to be exact, right? So I started making ice cream on a, on a small churning bowl, which is about this big. Mm. So it was just like a, a for for a home-based um, ice cream machine. And um, of course, the first flavors we tried were um, strawberry chocolate and vanilla. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would give it to my friends and my family. And they're like, oh my God, this is so good and all that. And I'm like thinking, are you just pulling my leg? Are you just being nice to me? <laughs> you're always doubting yourself. I'm always doubting myself. Yeah. I'm, you know, thinking, maybe you're just being nice to me. But everybody said it was good and all that. But even me, I knew it was really good because, you know, trying ice cream in the U.S. and eating it in New Zealand and in, in Europe, you know, I knew that our ice cream was superior, mm -hmm. you know. So we started, we launched it in 2011. Um February of 2011. And after two years, because I was still working for the family business, yeah. I asked my father if I could take it on full time mm. because it had grown to a certain level. And if I could take a course in Penn State in the U.S. because that's where the premier ice cream class is. And he said, yeah, go ahead, do it. You know, And um, I was very fortunate that he didn't stop my salary in the cable business. <laughs> because if he if he had stopped my salary, maybe things would have been different. Right. Maybe I would have been yes. cutting a little bit with the quality or what, you know. But since I was getting my salary from the other business, I could do whatever I wanted with with uh, with the ice cream, right? So my food cost was very high, but it was 
it was amazing. The taste was amazing because I wasn't thinking of the food cost. I was just thinking of the quality, right? Yes. And you can imagine what food would taste like if you just think of the quality. That's right. When you cook for your family, you're not thinking of the food cost, what your margin is and so on. So it it tastes better. And, uh, you know, it just started um, snowballing into something bigger and bigger and to the point that the Pope ate our ice cream when he flew back to Rome. And that just really opened up the gates when, you know, people read about that when the Pope had her ice cream. He became your biggest ambassador. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, that's so. amazing. You know, and, and I'm a big fan of your ice cream. I mentioned that to you before as well. And, and one thing that I um, like about that ice cream is that uh, a lot of the times when you eat ice cream, it tastes like, you know, there has been air pumped into it just to fluff it out or there is a use of vegetable oil so it changes the you know the texture as well as the taste with carmen's best it you can tell that it's milk right there is no unnecessary chemicals that you have added into it and i think that's the idea is when people try it they tend to remember the first time they tried it even though it's been years ago and number two, they start telling their family and friends about it. Because as you know, we never really had any ad um, ad campaigns, you know, whether it be newspaper, TV, or, or radio. Everything was through social media and through word of mouth. And that's how we grew you know, uh, for the last uh, 10 years, um, just social media and word of mouth. So we've been, uh, we've been very, very blessed. Now you mentioned you went to Penn State for that ice cream making course. How did that course change the quality of your product? Because you were already making ice cream that people loved. So did you make any changes after taking that course? Yes, I tweaked it a little bit. I tweaked the recipe and um, it became more of a balanced product. Uh, You know, with ice cream, it has to be balanced for it to be really good. And I think it being more balanced, it became more consistent as we made more and more um, volume, as our volume increased. Mm -hmm. So it helped us out a lot because I think after taking the course, it just made our product more consistent. So it was a helpful course for you to take. And from what I understand, uh, you actually won an award. Um, Yes. And I I don't know whether I'm saying it right, but it's called Kini Beanie Award. That's right. Being one of the best students at the course. So, you know, it was a one week course and I knew I had to absorb as much as I could. And you have to understand, I had two years of working ice cream, you know, because I started in 2011, the course was 2013. I sat in the front and I sat in the middle. I just wanted to absorb as much as I could. And, you know, as they would talk, I would, you know, give my input or what I was doing and so on and so forth. And at the end of the class, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a, a Kini Award, where it's given to the most promising ice cream maker. Oh, and wow. um, yeah, they they gave it to me. And after graduation, they said um, it was between the students and the professors that they chose the most uh, promising ice cream makers. So I thought, oh wow, I, I didn't even I didn't even angle for it or anything. <laughs> I just got it. So, yeah. <laughs> you were just naturally yeah. excited to, you know, be a sponge, right? I mean, yeah. it was not about, you were not representing a company like uh, Hagen Das. No. You were no. trying to be your own. That's right. And, you know, it's funny because my classmates were people from Jenny's Ice Cream, from Hagen Das, from Ben and Jerry's. 
Perry's ice cream. We had some people who were from big companies and uh, yeah. most of them were plant-based, meaning they were working in the processing plant. And uh, I was, you know, many entrepreneurs thinking of going into ice cream, but I had already been doing it for two years. So I had a, I had an advantage. No, that's amazing. Well, congratulations on that. Thank Kini you. Bini award that you Thank won. you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You came back and from what I understand, uh, it was not a very easy transition going from cable to ice cream, at least for the first couple of years, you struggle quite a bit getting this uh, business up and running. Yeah, it was hard, you know, even making people try the ice cream because number one, I am not known to be a culinary person. I don't have a restaurant or a <laughs> coffee shop. People know that I didn't study culinary. I'm not a pastry chef, you know. So it's literally knocking at doors and pounding the streets and just, you know, uh, doing a lot of legwork or as they say in the olden days, a lot of elbow grease, right? <laughs> so it's yes. going to different places and uh, constantly calling and knocking on people's doors and um, and slowly sort of build a little bit of momentum, you know, get one or two accounts in and then you can start referring to, you know, we got these guys, so maybe you guys want to try it out. And so, you know, starting anything from scratch is very difficult. And you know, I, it was only me doing it. I didn't have anyone, you know, working with me um, full-time. I was the only one full-time working it. So. Really? So you were the only employee making the ice cream and then going out on the street and selling it? Selling it. it. And uh, yeah, I was the only one. So um, so at home, we were making it in the house. So it was, yeah. you know, I asked my maids, okay, which one of you would like to help me? Because you can't force them, right? You cannot force anyone yeah. to do anything. So I got, the, got them together. I said, I'm starting an ice cream business. Who wants to help me out? <laughs> because I'll give you extra pay. I'll, I'll pay you extra. Uh -huh. But this will be after working hours. So this is going to be after, you know, 6 or 7 p.m. Then we'll start making yeah. the ice cream. And there was only one person <laughs> who wanted to do it. So it was just me and her wow. making the ice cream. And so That's I would amazing. work in the morning, come home in the afternoon. And... Um, start making ice cream after dinner with the kids, right? So start making ice cream at 7 or 8 p.m. And the first few months, we were ending at, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. But as orders started to pile up, we were ending at 12, 1, 1 a.m. Wow. And I was thinking, okay, this is getting tiring. I'm, I'm doing two things at one time now. Yes. And uh, when, when the hours was hitting 2 or 3 a.m., I said, I need to talk to my father and say, I'm going to do this full time, you know? because yeah. the volume's picking up and, you know, so I would go to my office in Makati and while I'm having my meetings with the cable business, my personal driver was delivering ice cream. <laughs> so we were, we were, we were just, uh, you know, uh, multitasking everywhere from, yeah. from me, yeah. my driver, my, my uh, cook in the house. And um, our first full-time employee was hired three years after. And wow. we hired, um, yeah, so we hired a, a food tech and uh, the food tech was helping me with the uh, flavors and all that because I think it's important that I spent most of my time selling because that's that's more of my strength, selling that's and right, making yeah. the flavors. Yeah, so that, that was that was my role. Yeah. So you didn't have a, f a place you made the ice cream. It was all done at your home. Yeah. And how much ice cream were you making in the beginning? Um, 
How do you even measure it? Well, industry-wise, they measure it by gallons. Uh, that's the industry. Okay. Uh, but we were just making ice cream in pints, uh, the pint size. Okay. So, um, and we also just made ice cream when it was ordered. So we didn't have mm. to store or keep ice cream in stock because that's very expensive. You have to keep it frozen. Um, so when it's ordered, I tell them it'll take us five to seven days. Although I could do it that same night, right? <laughs> so it takes five yes, to seven yes. days. Oh, wow, you <laughs> delivered in two days. You're very efficient. I go, yes, actually, I don't have that many clients. But anyway, <laughs> so, so, you know, it was um, it was like that for a good two to three years. And, um, you know, fortunately, um, it's, it just kept on growing. And um, I think, like I said, the word of mouth and uh, people recognizing the fact that it was very different from anything they've tried. Yes. And, and the people I was selling to were people who have traveled, who have lived abroad and so on. So yeah. they knew it was very different. So. No, that's amazing. What an incredible startup story, right? But something else that was going on in, in your life uh, during this time, Paco, and I would like to briefly cover that here. Uh, yeah. In 2013, uh, you were uh, diagnosed with leukemia, uh, a type yes. of cancer. And uh, from what I understand, uh, doctors gave you only three years to live. Yes. How was that experience? Can you walk us through that phase of your life? This was in 2013, the year I took the, the ice cream course. And normally I get my annual checkup in February, early February, which is my birthday. But the ice cream course was in January. And then my father's political campaign kicked off in March. Oh, okay. So, you know, we got busy and got so you know tired with the campaign going all over the country. Because senator is for the whole country. It's That's not right. just yeah. for a certain area. And um, I got my annual checkup after the election, which was around May. And um, so I did it in um, St. Luke's Global. And uh, after doing my executive checkup, they called me up again and say they said that I had to go back for, for another test. They just had to confirm something. Wow. And I found it a little odd, which is yeah. that never happened to me before. Right? Yeah. So I wasn't really thinking much of it. So I went back and, you know, they did my my WBC or the white blood count. And they said it was really off, right? And um, that I needed to go see a hematologist uh, mm. to talk about, you know, what's going on. And, um, you know, the hematologist, I guess because he's very Filipino, he didn't want to say that I had leukemia. He just said that there's a chance that I need to get a bone marrow transplant. And I was like, oh my Whoa, wait a second. That's, I said, oh. is there something you're supposed to tell me before you tell me that I need a bone marrow transplant? Yeah. Because that's, that's a big thing, right? Yes. And I said, do you mind if I get a second opinion? Yeah. Just to confirm, because yeah. this is not like a common cold or something. Yes. So I um, consulted with a, um, uh, another doctor who was a cancer specialist. Mm. And, uh, you know, he looked at me straight in the eye. He said, do you have leukemia? And uh, I was like, you know, like, are you talking to me? You know, I mean, I was so fit. You know, I was I was in fighting form, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and I wasn't feeling weak. I had no body pain. And I was thinking, well, and if you tell me that I have leukemia, I'd like to go to the U.S. I said, I, I'd like to go to MD Anderson, which is in Houston, Texas. Yeah. And, you know, that's where I grew up in Houston. Right? Yeah. So, you know, he said, yeah, please go. You better if you can go there because I have insurance in the U.S. Yeah. So it wasn't going to cost me a lot of money. So I went there 
alone. Nobody was with me. Mm. And um, I went there alone. So I checked in, went to the doctor. And and I was fortunate enough that the doctor that I went to see was the junior doctor of my stepfather. Because mm. my, my stepfather was from Houston and he was a doctor in MD Anderson. So even that, I was thinking of all the sicknesses I could have gotten, of all the different cancers I could have gotten. Yeah. I got the cancer that my stepfather was a specialist for. Wow. Right? So I was thinking, yeah, I did get cancer, but how lucky am I to get this kind of cancer? You know, yeah. the fact that, you know, we, we knew the doctor and all that. And um, so I went through chemotherapy, um, maybe two, two cycles of chemotherapy. And... Um, I was thinking, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get better. Hmm. Uh, there's a chance that I will, you know, go in three years. And, um, you know, there's a lot of crying and there's a lot of thinking of what could have been and all these things. But, you know, when you realize that you're going to die and you accept it, you you reach a level of peace that you never knew existed. Wow. Like everything's fine and you know, you don't get so upset anymore and you're more understanding of things. You leave bigger tips, you know, and you're... And I knew that, you know, if I had to go in three years, yeah. maybe that was my destiny. That was my my journey. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to grow the company enough where, you know, my kids could take over when I go. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily, um, you know, I was told that I was in remission. Mm-hmm. And um, that was uh, three years after my last chemotherapy. And uh, I've been in remission since. And uh, But I never forgot mm-hmm. the idea of thinking that you only have three years to live. Mm. Because I'm sure everybody would live a different life yeah. if they thought they had three years to live. Yeah. You know, they'd be more purposeful with the things that they did. They'd talk to people that they needed to talk to and not just brush it under the rug. And, um, you know, they do things with a little bit more sense of urgency than thinking that they'll live till they're 70 or 80 years old. And you tend to just hang out with people that you don't want to waste time with. You just hang out with people that that you feel, you know, uh, you want to spend time with. Yeah. I'm glad you are in uh, remission uh, right now, Paco. And uh, I'm glad that you have given all of us a great gift of Carmen's Best Ice Cream. What are your plans for the future for the company? Obviously, you built a good brand name for the company here in the Philippines. When you look at the company's future for the next 10 years, what are you planning to do? Well, there's not really one company that we can follow that is currently operational because we're actually the first Philippine company that targeted the premium market the AB market. Yeah. So there's really not one company we can follow that is currently operational in the Philippines that we can sort of use as a guide or as a reference. So in a way, we're, how do you say, we're trailing our own path um, yeah. since there's not really one company we can follow. But what we have done in the past few months is to come out with a new line of ice cream that is targeted to the the food um, the food service sector. And this is um, a lower-priced ice cream that is in the same manufacturing category as the current mass-produced ice cream, 
but we made ours taste better, of course. <laughs> so, of course, yeah. yeah. So um, I've been getting a lot of good feedback from it that, um, you know, many groups are looking to actually are open to making me present and they like the quality. So um, I think that is our next um, goal is to capture a bigger market of the, the Horeca or the hotels and restaurants as hopefully things come back in the near future to higher levels in terms of sales, especially oh, okay. for the coffee shop, restaurants, hotels. And are you changing your distribution strategy given what we have learned during the pandemic? Uh, and, and to keep up with, you know, some of the other e-commerce companies who are doing so well in same day delivery or the next day delivery. Yeah. Well, we've um, actually made our website, carmensbest.com, a full e-commerce site. So people can go online and purchase our ice cream, um, arrange for delivery, and we deliver next day. You know, it's very hard to deliver ice cream um, and work with a third party logistics group because most of them don't have um, thermal bags and you know, reusable dry ice. And sometimes they'll deliver you last in their list, you know, not for any particular reason, but maybe because of convenience. So if you you are not in a, you know, thermal bag, your product is not in a thermal bag, ice cream is going to melt, you know. Yeah. So the, the client will be mad at me, not at the delivery company. That's right. Yeah. So we have to um, find a way around it. And, you know, ice cream is not really something that, people want to eat like immediately and like, like a pizza or a burger that can be easily delivered. So we're doing next day delivery for our ice cream. Oh no, that's beautiful. Anything else that you've learned during the pandemic uh, that would change the way you will run the organization besides this one day delivery concept? We were thinking of um, rolling out stores in, in Metro Manila, which you know, in hindsight, I'm glad we didn't because had we opened several stores, it would have probably, you know, been very difficult for us to to get get over. Yeah. Um, but we're gonna remain uh, selling to B2B or to okay. um, you know to other businesses, uh, which is why we came up with a second line of ice cream, which is we call our value line. Beautiful. Well, uh, it's been an amazing journey, Paco, that you have done. Uh, what a fascinating life you have lived. You know, going from uh, Philippines to U.S., uh, emptying all those 18-wheelers and cleaning <laughs> toilets to selling MCI products to coming That's here right. and selling cable. And now, yes. obviously, being uh, one of the uh, top business person here in the Philippines, Thank launching you. a new new ice cream. So that's amazing. We are at a point where we just go through rapid fire questions uh, that I ask all the all of my guests. Sure. So we'll start off with the first one. What's the biggest mistake you have made, Paco, and uh, what have you learned from it? I guess the biggest mistake I can think of would be more on the business side. When we purchased an inline ice cream uh, equipment, um, because realized that it was not really made to make high quality ice cream. But in a way, it turned out to be a good thing because that's what we're using now to make the value line. Mm -hmm. So a mistake that became a good thing. What has been your biggest fear in life and uh, what have you learned from it? I guess if any of my kids go before me, I mean, I think that's something that I think many uh, parents, you know, get, you know, they, they think of and um, anything but that. So no, if, if any of the kids go, yeah, so. How do you define success in your life? 
For me, success is, not, is more about doing what you enjoy, uh, waking up every day and uh, you know, being excited that uh, you're going to do what, you're, what you have to do and to be fortunate enough to be earning money from it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, you know, uh, as long as you can pay the bills. And of course, to have good health. You know, yeah. Good health is the most important. How about quotes in your life? Um, any quotes that have resonated with you well? that you keep uh, reminding yourself of or you share it with others? Well, the first quote I always think of is a journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. Yeah. And uh, for me, uh, many people, uh, they're so afraid of the unknown. And unless you take that first step and you, you know, start your journey, you'll never know what the unknown is. And That's for right. me, if I was not open to changing careers at the age yeah. of 43. I was 43 years old. Wow. You know, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I'd still yes. be sitting in my desk, behind my desk and, you know, earning my money and yeah, empty life. <laughs> That's right. That's right. How about books? Any books that you've read that have resonated well with you in uh, your personal life and your professional life? Well, um, the book I can think of the most right now is um, the book about the e economic assassin, how, mm. um, you know, guys from, I forget the name of the book now, but my, my memory escapes yeah. me. That's what chemotherapy does sometimes. <laughs> you, have, you have brain farts. Mm. But um, the book is about how uh, people from the World Bank and the IFC would go to third world countries and, you know, overestimate electric yeah. grids, uh, airports, um, railroad projects. I guess it's similar to what China's doing now to the world. Yeah. And uh, so now they're, they're the economic hitmen. You know, they, they tie up companies with so much loans and at the end of the day, they can't pay it back. And you have to give your vote in the UN and all these other things. So yeah, John Perkins, John Perkins book. Oh, okay. Now that's a beautiful book. Yeah, I've read about it. Obviously, speaking of books, um, you have published your own book about your dad, The Only Son. Uh, I think that came out uh, late last year. Yes. And it must have been a very emotional experience putting together that entire book. I read about it. Uh, I'm going to pick up uh, one of those copies. Um, it's a beautiful coffee table book. But any plans on writing your own book? about your business venture, about your entrepreneurial venture, and specifically about the journey you have taken with Carmen's Best? I haven't really thought about that. I mean, writing a book about the business because I think we're still far from what we want to be. Yeah. Um, but I'm open. I mean, I'm not, I haven't closed the door to that. I mean, I, I would be totally open about coming up with a book for that in the future. And what would be the title of that book? If you were to write a book about your own life, the man who lived the life that he wanted. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> right? I mean, how I, many people can say that? That yeah. I lived the life that I wanted. I love it. Yeah, that beautifully said. And I think it captures this entire podcast. So thank you so much, Paco, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us and sharing your very inspiring story with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me, Malik. Hey guys, this is Malik again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paco Maxaisai. 
if you'd like to listen to more of these inspiring conversations with leaders from around the world, make sure to subscribe. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.